Hello everybody and welcome to the first episode of the big Big Ten football show. I'm your host Daniel Mogollon here talking what else? Big Ten football. It's been a while fans. It's been a while since I've been behind the mic hosting my own podcast. I believe it's been about seven years since uh, we uh, put the big show to bed myself and my former co-host uh, Lloyd Ribner the third, uh, who I hope to, you know, have on as a guest uh, periodically to talk some Big Ten football. But I'm back now, and, um, you know, I have a guest today. We'll be talking to Alex Gleitman, who covers not one, but two Big Ten teams in the Ohio State Buckeyes and the Rutgers Scarlet Knights. And as this is the first show, I kind of want to give you my perspective of the Big Ten. I want you to put on the Danny goggles so you can see what I see so you can see where I'm coming from as I view these big 10 teams and when you talk about tier one you don't really need to get into it too much there's one team it is not debatable it is um, the Ohio State Buckeyes and uh, we're gonna get more into them with uh, Alex Gleitman later in the show but I think you know you know why they're the tier one team they they're the perennial favorite to win this conference. Um, and they're the team that everyone expects to make the playoff. You know, they're the only team you can say that about in the Big Ten. It's that simple. Tier two. I have four teams in tier two. That might sound a lot to some of you. But let me tell you how I got there. Yes, I have Penn State. Yes, I have Wisconsin. But I also have Michigan University as well as the Iowa Hawkeyes. Now, you're going to say, Dan, wait a second. Michigan stinks. Harbaugh, get him out of here. What's he doing? Listen, listen. Let's slow down a little bit, all right? Let's slow down a little bit, and let's take a look at why Michigan is still in that second tier. Now, I believe in within tier two, you have Michigan and Penn State, who are very similar, and that's because of talent. That's because of recruiting. After Ohio State, there's no question these are the two programs who recruit at the highest level in the Big Ten. Okay? The last six years we're talking for Michigan now. This is within the Big Ten. Number two, number two, number three, number one, number two, and number two. So literally, one year, Penn State was ranked ahead of Michigan. Otherwise... They've out-recruited everybody but Ohio State in the Big Ten, okay? If you compare that to Penn State, they are number four, number three, number two, number two, number three, little dip last season at number six, but consistently at the top of the Big Ten. Penn State's won 49 games in the five years prior to last year. Michigan has won 47 in the five games prior to last year. And if you include last year, they're three and three head-to-head. In, uh, when you talk about Jim Harbaugh versus James Franklin. So I, I think I really, by any objective measure, these programs are pretty darn close. Um, then you go to the West, you have Wisconsin, who's got 52 wins, which is, you know, three more than Penn State, five more than Michigan. But let's be fair, they play in the West. They play in the easier division. There's no if and or buts about it. Okay? 
And now there's the Iowa Hawkeyes. 47 wins. That's the same as Michigan. That's only two less than Penn State. This team, their lowest win total over the last five years has been eight. Penn State won seven during that stretch, as did Michigan in a season. And the Hawkeyes have made a bowl in 11 of 12 years. So in these four programs, we are expecting in the range of 8, 9, 10 wins, maybe 11 on a great year. Um, do some of these teams have you know a higher ceiling than others? Sure, have they has the their peaks been equal? No, obviously not. Their peaks haven't been equal. Michigan's peak, you know, Penn State's peak has been higher than Michigan's peak. They won the Big Ten. They finished uh, fifth in the country. Um, you know, but as for Iowa, let's not forget they were once what a field goal away from making the college football playoff. Um, so you know, some respect to the Hawkeyes program as well. All right, let's shift to tier number three these are the teams that have kind of managed to i think of late at least and in northwestern's case over a bigger time span these tier three teams have done the most with the least you know what i mean the most with the least they're not recruiting anywhere near michigan and penn state they're not even recruiting anywhere near wisconsin or iowa and they're actually behind some of the teams behind them in the fourth tier in terms of recruiting, but they're managing to win games. Uh, Northwestern's got 39 wins in the five years prior to last year. They've been a fairly consistent team. They did have that one downswing where they went three and nine, but the, you know, the peaks are not that high. They kind of do it once and you're not sure if they can do it again. Um, Last season was their best season during a COVID year. I don't want to take anything away from anybody. You get credit for what you get, but when you're analyzing things, you got to say it was you know, it was definitely a strange year and they reached number 10 in the country and they finished number 10 in the country. That's the best they've done. Um before that, the highest they reached was in 2015 was number 12 and they finished 23 that year. And before last year in a full season, the highest the Pat Fitzgerald team has ever finished is 17th in the country. Okay. Now they've got 39 wins over the five years leading up to last year. If we throw out last year, Minnesota has got 38 wins before then they've made a bowl in seven out of eight years, actually a more consistent run than I thought they had. Uh, PJ flex record is 21 and 17 heading into last year. If you want to include the COVID year, he's 24 and 21 not fantastic they've only had one season of 10 plus wins since 2003 and that was under pj fleck that was in 2019 when the gophers won 11 games they reached as high as number seven in the country that year and they finished number 10 in the country and then we have the minis uh the indiana hoosiers excuse me the hoosiers have 30 wins in the five seasons prior to last year tom allen was 18 and 19 he upped his record to 24 and 21 after last season which is the same exact uh, wins loss record as pj fleck now you know i know a lot of people really love the hoosiers i know they think uh, tom allen is the star of a show on apple tv and i don't want to hate on tom allen 
But, you know, if you say something bad about somebody, it, it must mean you hate them. But, you know, the Hoosiers hadn't beaten Michigan in what, like, I don't know, in most of your lifetimes, in over 40 years. It had also been a while since they beat Penn State, right? So Indiana, you know, can they get the breakthrough win? That that was Tom Allen's big thing. Can they beat one of the big three in the East? Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State. And, you know, they won two last year. And I hope every single Indiana fan out there enjoyed it so much. I hope they partied safely with masks on, obviously. I hope they partied after those wins. But you can't tell me that it's a coincidence that the that Indiana was able to beat Michigan and Penn State in a year where both Michigan and Penn State had losing records, which is not typical from these programs, as we learned at the top of the show if we didn't know already. So, excuse me, but I want to see more from Indiana, who's had only one winning full season since 2007. That was in 2019. And last year, that COVID year, was their peak. It was their peak. They reached number seven in the country. They finished at number 12. Let me see you do it again. Am I asking for too much? You know what I mean? I don't think I'm, you know, Indiana basketball, you guys got the benefit of the doubt for, uh, you know, decades before people started saying you're not a blue blood. So you understand how it works. You don't get to have just one good year and boom, you're in the club. You got to prove it over and over again. All right. Tier four. We got the Terps, the Maryland Terrapins, who, you know, just consistently underachieve. I should almost put Maryland and Nebraska in their own tier. They're they're the underachieving teams of the conference. Maryland's recruiting classes in the Big Ten have gone as such. Four, five, eleven, six, four. Yet their finishes in the Big Ten are six, five, seven, five, six. Not in the Big Ten, in the Big Ten East. They're lucky to just stay out of the basement when they should be a consistent team with a winning record. The last time they made a bowl was 2016, DJ Durkin's first year in Maryland. The last time they had a winning record, Randy Etzel was coaching the Terps. That was in 2014. Mike Loxley was 3-9 and nine in his first full season back with Maryland, 2-3 and three last season. It's time for the Terps to start to play to their talent, which it's been years since we've seen them do it. Nebraska, same boat. Their recruiting classes since 2015 have been fourth, fifth, fifth, fourth, 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 fifth in the Big Ten. This is Bo Pelini. Let's go nine and three every year and, and hate ourselves for it, except... Their finishes in, in the West have not been good. They are basically a consistent fourth or fifth place team in the West. And the last time they made a bowl or had a winning record was 2016 under Mike Riley. Scott Frost, the chosen one. He is 12-20 and 20 as head man in Lincoln. And if you want to throw out last year, he was 9-15 and 15 going into last season. So th- these two programs, Maryland and Nebraska until you show us we have no reason to believe in you we have no reason to trust you will be good that you will play up to your talent level now we have Michigan State I mean uh, yes Michigan State and Purdue Michigan State is kind of on their own you know boat 
so to speak. Um, I know PJ Fleck is not going to be happy about Michigan State having a boat, but they they had a stretch under D'Antonio where they won 11 plus games in five out of six seasons. Five out of six seasons, they won at least 11 games. That's that, folks, is Ohio State esque right there. But in his last four seasons, they reached more than seven wins just once. So clearly, the program was trending in the wrong direction. The recruiting had gone from fourth, third, and third. That was their peak. Then it went to sixth, sixth, and seventh in the Big Ten. And finally, tenth and tenth. So the program is just going in the wrong direction. But you got Mel Tucker here, two and five last season, an impossible job took over a couple weeks after he takes over he probably hasn't even seen all the kids or shaken all the kids hands COVID comes so it's a really tough spot and a tough evaluation on where the the Spartans are as a program right now then you have the Purdue Boilermakers who in the five years leading up to last year have 22 wins Uh, Brian Brom is was 17 and 21 in his first three years after last year he's 19 and 25 Unlike these other coaches, he has proven something. Their last bowl, 2018, head coach, Brian uh, Brian Brom. Jeff Brom, excuse me. Uh, Their last winning season, the year before that, 2017, Jeff Brom. So, you know, and before that, it was 2011 when they also went seven and six. And and the only one before between, that was the only one between Joe Tiller, who ended in 2008, and Brom. So they had one winning season in like 12 or 13 years. So Brom took over a total mess, but he started out strong. And the problem there is, is the, is the direction, right? If, if he had his last two years or his first two years and his first two years or his last two years, we'd be looking at this program differently. I'm not going to write him off just yet. I still have faith in my guy. I think Brom's an excellent coach. I would take him over Frost. I would take him over Fleck. I would take him over Mel Tucker. I would take him over Mike Loxley. I would take him over Tom Allen. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But that's what I would do. I would take him over those guys. But he deserves, you know, until uh, he proves it, coming off two down season, he deserves to be in Tier 4. And he's got the opportunity to work his way up. Should he have a good season this year? We'll see. And then there's the bottom of the barrel. There's Rutgers and there's Illinois. Illinois has got 21 wins, which is only one behind Purdue uh, prior to last year. But their recruiting is just absolutely abysmal. Since 2015, they were last in the Big Ten, 8th, 13th, 10th, 12th, 13th, last again, and then 13th. Their last bowl game was 2019. Lovey did have that one bowl season, and they finished 6-7. and seven. Their last winning season, believe it or not, was with Ron Zook as head coach, a decade ago in 2011. So this is a big, big rebuilding project that Brett Bielema has on hand. They did bring in a, a proven head coach. I know he had a rough tenure with Arkansas. Um, I'm not going to say he deserves a total pass, but I can't forget that he did a pretty good job with Wisconsin. And I think coming back to Illinois is a better fit for him. Um, he was able to step away from head coaching for a couple of years. Maybe he picked up some stuff from Bill Belichick as an assistant there with the New England Patriots. And, um, you know, maybe there's some reason for optimism with the Illini, but it's a big rebuilding job. And another big rebuilding job is the one in Piscataway in Rutgers. 
where the Scarlet Knights have had won a meager 13 games in the five seasons leading up to 2020. And last year they went three and six and they were like, you know, wow, Greg Shiano, coach of the year, three and six. I mean, to be fair, all three were conference wins. All nine games were conference games. So there was no gimmies there. And this is a program that had a, a conference losing streak that I believe had reached the twenties. So outstanding work by Greg Shiano, who I, I think is a fantastic coach. I think this is a perfect hire. I think he's going to be at back at home in, in New Jersey, recruiting an area he knows, building a type of culture in a community that suits him, that fits him like a glove. I think they're going to, I think he's going to turn it around. I really do believe that. I do believe he's going to turn it around, but where he's starting is the bottom of the barrel. Okay. The last time this program made a bowl and had, and had a winning record. It was the same year as 2014 with Kurt Flood. Kurt Flood took over for Shiano, made a bowl game in his first three seasons, missed the bowl, got fired, and then it's been a tumble, an absolute tumble since then for the Rutgers Scarlet Knights. So I think talent-wise, when you look at these two programs, I, I, I don't think they're that far off, even though there might be some more optimism for Rutgers than there is for Illinois heading into the 2021 season. Joining us today is the first guest of our new show. It's Alex Gleitman. Uh, you can read, find him on Twitter at Alex Gleitman, G-L-E-I-T-M-A-N. And he covers the Ohio State Buckeyes. He's an insider for Buckeye Scoop, as well as the Rutgers Scarlet Knights for Rutgers Rivals. Uh, Alex, thank you for joining us today. Of course, man. Happy to be here. Excited for the uh, Big Ten season to kick off, actually. This weekend uh, with a little Illinois, Nebraska, before we get into the, the rest of college football, pretty much opening up next week. Very exciting yeah. times. Yeah, it's a nice little appetizer, that conference game in week zero. Uh, Big Ten doing a lot of early conference game, including the Buckeyes. And and let's start there. You know, the cream of the crop in the Big Ten, hands down. You know, uh, as I was tearing off the teams in this conference, Ohio State is clearly in a class uh, by themselves. Um, let's talk a little bit about the quarterback situation, which has got to be one of the most intriguing in the history of college football. When you talk about the juxtaposition of talent meeting inexperience, we got three now, now with uh, Quinn Ewers on board, we got three five-star quarterbacks. I'm not sure if any teams had that before yet. These four guys have combined to throw as many passes as you and I. So it looks like um, C.J. Stroud's going to be the starter. But what do you expect from this position uh, this season? Yeah, I think, you know, given the track record of the quarterback position at Ohio State for a while, um, given Ryan Day's track record at developing quarterbacks and utilizing them in the system, and the fact that all these guys were highly recruited and competing going head-to-head and C.J. Stroud emerges as the winner, I, I think – you, while, you know, you can't expect C.J. Stroud to step in and be Justin Fields or Dwayne Haskins or even J.T. Barrett right, right away, you have to expect strong results. I think if you're an Ohio State fan, anything less than winning the Big Ten and making the college football playoff is a disappointment this year. Uh, whether they go undefeated or maybe lose a game, that's really irrelevant. At the end of the day, you just want to be in that college football playoff at the end of the year and have a chance to compete for a national title. So anything short of that opportunity, I think, is a failure. And I think the expectation is that C.J. Stroud, while there could be some growing pains early, 
Um, you know, he's got a great support system, especially on the offensive side of the ball. And, you know, if he could get through some of those growing pains by middle of the year, end of the year, it's expected that, you know, he's going to be potentially big 10 offensive player of the year, win that silver football, uh, be, you know, right there, putting up excellent numbers, potentially be invited to New York for the Heisman trophy. And that's kind of crazy to say, because as you mentioned, none of these guys have thrown uh, a pass at the college level. And so to expect those things on someone like that is, is kind of unfair, but that's just what the expectations at Ohio state have become. Yeah, I couldn't agree uh, more. You said it perfectly. Um, the expectations are high for a reason, and there's no reason to expect anything less with the track record of the program, of the coach. Um, it sounds like if I asked you, barring injury, how many starts does C.J. Stroud have over under 11 and a half, you're taking the over. Yeah, barring injury, I'm, I'm taking the over. Um, obviously, performance, you know, it, it, I'm not going to say he's on a short leash, but they have Kyle McCord. They have Jack Miller by maybe mid to end of the season. Maybe Quinn Ewers is kind of rounding into form and, and getting used to the uh, kind of system uh, and, and pace of play at the college level. But I don't expect him really to do much. But so, sure. I mean, there is an opportunity where if he's not playing great and they lose a game, two games and he's struggling and they're they're barely squeaking games out in, in games they should be winning by significant margins that they could look to make a change. But right now, from everything I'm hearing, there's a pretty big separation between Stroud and the, the rest of the quarterbacks that happened at camp. And they're pretty confident that he's going to be the guy uh, for the, the entirety of the season. Yeah, I, I don't think there's too many concerns in Columbus for the quarterback position. Um, if there is something the Buckeyes should be concerned about that could prevent them from making it back to the playoffs, um, what, what's something that you would put a spotlight on as, as an area of concern heading into the season? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to look at the defense. Uh, I'm going to be as kind as I possibly can in saying that by Ohio State standards and pretty much anyone's standards, they were pretty atrocious last year. Um, you know, there was many reasons for that. I think uh, obviously COVID impacted every team and Ohio State having to replace a lot of key players, Chase Young, Jeff Okuda, uh, Damon Arnett, all of those guys were first round picks. I, I, you know, and there was a few other players, Jordan Fuller, who ended up starting for the Rams as a rookie. Uh, there, there was a number of guys that they had to replace on the defensive line in the secondary. They had a new defensive coordinator in Kerry Combs, and then you add COVID into the mix. They weren't able to have a proper spring to develop those guys. They thought the season was canceled. It was back on. They didn't have a real camp. COVID issues throughout the season. Uh, you could practice this day. You can't that day. You're not going to have this guy available this week, but they're going to be available next week. They had only one practice in pads before the Alabama game, uh, which is just crazy. So, so it, it's, there's a lot of factors as to why the defense did not perform up to even, you know, an average standard last year. But for me, that's what I'm really looking at. They had a full off season, a full spring, a full camp. Uh, Kerry Combs was moved out of his secondary position coach duties. They moved Matt Barnes into that role so that Kerry can overview the entire defense, not just coach a position and have to uh, oversee the entire defense. Uh, so, so there's, and, and, and some of those, you know, younger guys have a, I guess a, a half year of experience. And um, I, I just think that this year the defense will be better, but how much better? And that is really my biggest question mark. Um, when it comes to Ohio State's success this year, outside of, you know, some of the inexperience in week two, you get Oregon, someone of a veteran team, a good defensive team, veteran quarterback coming on the road. That kind of reminds me of Virginia Tech 
coming into Ohio State in 2014 when Ohio State had an inexperienced team. Obviously, you hope Ohio State wins that game. And even if they lose, you hope it ends up like that 2014 season did after they lost to Virginia Tech where they run the table and then win the national title. But those would be inexperienced to a lesser degree, but more so how does the defense perform? That's the biggest thing I'm looking at for Ohio State's ultimate success. Are they a Big Ten contender? Are they a playoff contender? And then really, are they a national title contender? Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Uh, you know, in breaking down Minnesota's schedule, obviously, if you're the Gophers, you'd rather not play Ohio State at all. But if you have to play him, I think week one is probably the ideal time. Yeah, I mean, look, Minnesota gets them at home. Um, week one, breaking in, as you said, a new quarterback who hasn't thrown a pass yet. Uh, offensive line is going to have some new, at least names and combinations of positions, and the defense needs to get their footing down. And so there's no better time to get them. Um, and looking ahead, maybe to week two to Oregon a little bit as well. I, I don't think you can, you know, these kids are 18 to 22 year old uh, young men that you can't overlook those types of factors in, in this. So uh, I, I think, I, I think Ohio state should win that game pretty handily, but 15 and a half points is not what Ohio state's used to seeing when it comes to uh, their opening day spread. This is true. It's a lot of times it's in the thirties. So, um, you know, after Ohio state, um, the way I view the big 10, I think there's kind of that second tier teams where you have uh, Penn state and Michigan, which are kind of the next two programs in terms of the recruiting, getting the talent. Um, you know, obviously people were higher on uh, Michigan earlier in Harbaugh's tenure. We've seen Penn State actually win the conference. Um, then I would also throw in Wisconsin and Iowa, maybe not as talented as Penn State or Michigan, probably benefit a little bit from playing in the West Division. But those four schools pretty much, um, you know, you expect them to be top 25 type teams. And if they aren't, you consider it a disappointing season. Sometimes the expectations are even higher depending on how the roster shakes out in the team. Um, how do you feel about those four? Do you think um, any of those four, am I overrating them? Should I be knocking Michigan down? What do you think? Are we talking traditionally or, or this year specifically, I guess, is my question. Um, not necessarily just this year, but this, the current state of the program, I guess I'd say. Yeah, I, I think Penn State, Wisconsin, for sure. Iowa is interesting because they're kind of up and down. I mean, they're consistently a 7-8 win team with the occasional 10 win. You know, Kirk Ferentz getting into the Big Ten championship game, winning Big Ten coach of the year. And I think that this could be one of those years for Iowa. I think it's Iowa or Wisconsin in the Big Ten West this year. So I would say like a combination of both. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't expect a great year for Michigan. That's just not Ohio State bias for me. I just don't think that they have that talented of a roster. I I'm, I don't think Jim Harbaugh is doing a great job of coaching. I know he's made some huge coaching shakeups, and that's either going to go one way or the other. I'm, I'm a little skeptical of that. So I think Michigan's heading for us eight and four, seven and five type year, which to me would not put them in that second tier this season. But traditionally, yes. I mean, they are – generally a top 25 team um, and they're kind of in that second tier, not they haven't challenged for the conference really um, in, in like five years since like really the 2016 um, season um, where they had that great overtime game uh, in Columbus. Uh, well, great for if you're an Ohio state fan, but 
I, I think that they, if they don't turn things around fast, they're headed toward tier three where they're kind of more of a fringe top 25 team um, and, and not really a perennial top 25 team. Uh, let me ask you a question there about that program and specifically the rivalry with Ohio State. I, I don't think I've ever seen a rivalry that's so lopsided with the with the you know with the top dog never taking the other team lightly. It's amazing how much emphasis Ohio State still has on Michigan, no matter how many times they beat them in a row. You know, usually you tend you kind of that second team almost becomes an after, afterthought, but not in this rivalry. Yeah, no, I mean, you go into that building and everything's about beating Michigan. Um, you look at the team goals every year. You look at, you know, you walk into that building, there's a countdown to the game. The minute, the minute the game ends, the, you know, that like this year, the minute the game ends, they'll have a countdown for the 2022 game. And um, they have sessions in their practices dedicated to, to beating Michigan every single day from the spring and winter conditioning all the way, you know, till that game prep week. And so, they take it very seriously. It's not something that they're taking for granted. And I think all you have to do is um, go back to the nineties, at least the John Cooper era, right? Like Ohio state was two ten and one under John Cooper. And while those two wins are more than Michigan has in the last, uh, uh, the last probably, I guess, almost 20 years, maybe at this point, uh, a little, a little bit less than that. Um, it, 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 you know, Ohio state fans remember that time very, very well. And so I think that obviously Ryan day is doing a great job. Um, but who knows, uh, either Jim Harbaugh turns it around or someone like Matt Campbell comes in and the tables can turn very quickly. It could become an even rivalry. It could become a lopsided rivalry the other way. So I don't, I don't think Ohio state takes it for granted one for one second. And, uh, it's something that, you know, Jim Tressel started and then Urban Meyer instilled further. And then Ryan Day kind of learned from Urban Meyer how to make sure that they keep that rivalry really important. Now on that next tier, I, I would put in uh, Indiana from the East, as well as Minnesota and Northwestern from the West. Um, you know, these teams rarely, if ever, have recruiting classes in the top 25 or 30 even. Um, but they somehow managed to kind of get the most out of the least um, Pat, you know, Mr. Coach Fitzgerald, I should say, has been doing it uh, a little longer than the guys at Minnesota and Indiana, but I think it really speaks a lot to the coaching. Um, would you say they're on your next tier? And if you had to pick one of those schools to kind of maybe move up into the, the next tier, which one would it be? Yeah, I, I would say Northwestern right now. I mean, they were in the big 10 championship game last year. I think Pat Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald does a, the best job of anyone of doing more with less um, in the entire country. So I, I really like um, the way they've recruited for given their academic restrictions. And I think he does a great job of developing players and getting the most out of them. Indiana is obviously a team I'm watching Tom Allen, incredible year last year, but can they sustain it? Minnesota is a program. Like I would maybe have Iowa in the tier three. They are usually in the top 25, but like, I feel like, I don't know. They're, they're pretty on par with like Northwestern and, and what I think Indiana is and can be um, Indiana could move up, but Minnesota is one where I'm not sold in 2019. They had a great year, but they also had a very, very easy schedule for the first nine, 10 games of the season before dropping. I think they, they finished did. 10 and two. Um, so, so, and then they didn't have a good year last year. They were three and four and we'll see what happens this year. I kind of think PJ Fleck might be a little smoke and mirrors. Um, good recruiter. Not sure. He's a great coach, but we will see this year for sure. But they're a program. 
when I would think about dropping uh, down a rank. Uh, so I think Indiana and Northwestern are two I have my eye on as potentially teams that could can move up if they can sustain the the success they've had over the last couple of years. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on PJ Fleck. I I still have question marks. I do think it's you know he, I think what he's done is great in terms of the culture and the energy that he brings, but I'm not sold on his coaching and that nine or no start. Not only was that schedule easy, they had some crazy lucky wins against far, far inferior programs, you know, where they were favored by 20 points and lucked out like a three point win at the end. Um, Indiana, I, I'm, I still, I'm still not sold on them. I know everybody loves uh, Tom Allen and, and what he brings and the Leo love everyone. And, and, but I don't know. I just feel like it, 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 to me, it can't be a coincidence that their break, quote unquote, breakthrough year came in a COVID year where both Michigan and Penn State, they finally beat those programs. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, Michigan and Penn State both had losing records last year. That's not, not something you typically see from either one of those programs. Uh, uh, should I give a little more benefit of the doubt to the Hoosiers? Um. I think this year will tell us a lot uh, as, you know, Penn State was down last year. Michigan was down last year. Um, I thought the, I don't think that the refs made the right decision, uh, the right call in that opening game against Penn State. And both right. of those team seasons could have turned out completely different had, I think, the right call been made, even though I, I kind of understand why they couldn't overturn it. Um, but I don't, I don't think it was the right call. Um, so I, I like what Tom Allen's doing, recruiting, building a culture. Uh, I think Kevin Wilson started it. And then, you know, obviously that got derailed a little bit um, with some of those accusations that, that kind of got him run, run out of town. Um, and Tom Allen's building it back up. The defense certainly, I mean, look, they gave Ohio State a great game last year. I mean, they were getting killed in the first half, but they didn't quit and they came back and made it a touchdown game at the end of the day. Um, so, you know, if Michael Penix could stay healthy. Um, I, I think the key for them is the, is going to be the offense. I mean, Nick Sheridan doing a great job. And if they can continue to recruit playmakers there, I think that they can be a team that um, challenges the Ohio State's, Penn State's, Michigan's of the world, um, wins a couple of those games every year. And, you know, maybe even challenges for the Big Ten East and the Big Ten. But right now, it's hard to say off one year in a COVID year that was kind of wacky for everyone. So, Let's wait and see on Indiana. I think that they do have the potential, but I kind of do think they're going to take a little bit of a step back this season. Yeah, we're come to a point that if you say anything bad about a team, you're automatically like (laughs) a hater. You know what I mean? Or you hate their team, but it's kind of like, you know, I don't think it's too much to ask to, can we see it again? Can we do it one more year? Not just, you know, base it off of one season. All right, the next tier um, in the same division in the East, you have Maryland, we have Michigan State. In the West, I threw in Purdue and Nebraska. In, you know, we have coaches that all have a lot to prove. Obviously, their tenures are are varying in terms of uh, Frost and and um, at Purdue, they they've been there a lot longer than the than Tucker and the coach at Maryland. So it's kind of hard to judge them on the same scale. But when you look at programs like Maryland and Nebraska in particular, you're talking about I think the two perennial underachievers. In, uh, in the Big Ten where their recruiting rankings are always better than the actual results on the field. Um, what direction, you know, do you want to take this with these programs? Is there any one of those four that you're feeling more bullish or bearish about? Um, no, I think Purdue's going in the wrong direction. I think Nebraska's going in the wrong direction. I think Maryland is 
probably right where they need to be, maybe going in the right direction. Depends how some of these highly regarded recruits are developed and utilized. Um, they're in a tough division, obviously, too. I think Michigan State is trending back toward being at one point they were a tier two, right? Like with Mark D'Antonio right. and yeah. then probably like historically more of a tier three. Um, and I think that they're trending back in that right direction with Mel Tucker, but let's, let's see how it goes um, this year, next year, the year after. Yeah. It's still very early in Mel Tucker's uh, tenure. I'm a little bit of a bigger Jeff Brom fan, I think, than, than sounds like you are, although I have to admit, you know, he's been disappointing since that second season when he took him to the bowl game. Um, yeah. But- I mean, he upset, he upset Ohio state that year, uh, obviously huge win. And I just, I have some inside information on that program from a variety of sources. And I just don't think the culture is really strong. You saw a lot of staff members leave and that wasn't because that they weren't doing a good job. They voluntarily left and a lot of players hit the transfer portal. I think that's something you got to keep an eye on. Um, you know, I'm not saying it's a smoking bomb there in West Lafayette. I don't want to be quoted as that, but I do think that they had some culture issues within that locker room um, and leadership issues within that locker room. I'm not saying it's Brom, but there definitely were issues there. And I think if he doesn't get those turnaround fixed, I can see that program going the wrong direction. That's all I'm saying there. Uh, For sure. I mean, he should be on the hot seat. Of course, Scott Frost should definitely be on the hot seat. And, and, you know, Mike Loxley, let's be honest, uh, he's had a coaching opportunity before. He's never really been impressive as a game coach. I mean, he recruits great. He brings in players, but he still has yet to be successful as a head coach. All right. And then Great finally, offensive coordinator too. Definitely. Yes. Yes. A outstanding offensive coordinator, but a struggle as the head man. And then finally the last two teams, which are uh, Rutgers and Illinois, which I think are in, in a similar boat in that I believe they both have a chance to turn it around. I, I like the coaching hires of Brett Bielema, who, who knows what it takes to kind of win in the in the Big Ten West. I know it's kind of cliche, but I think it's true. And I think Illinois should be a better program. You know, state school, uh, pretty decent talent uh, there, similar with Rutgers. State school, a lot of great talent at Rutgers. Am I too harsh uh, having Rutgers still on the bottom tier coming off of last season? Um, I think Rutgers as a program right now is on par. I, I think they're actually – I would – I have them beating Maryland. I have them beating Michigan state. If they played Purdue this year, I would have them beating Purdue and maybe even beating Nebraska too, if they were playing. So I, from like, I think at the end of this year, you might have them on par with those tier four teams, but you know, it was again, three wins, great improvement, three conference wins when they hadn't won one, won a conference game in a couple of years. Um, so huge improvement, huge culture change in the right direction under Greg Schiano. I think that they are trending up, but you know, it's, let's see what they do this year. Last year was a wacky year, as I said, and if they, you know, I'm not saying they need to, to do, to win, make a bowl game or something this year, which I think is possible, but if they can win their first three games against Temple, Syracuse and Delaware, and then maybe pick off another two conference wins, you know, that's a five win season. And that's absolutely worthy of being a tier four team. Um, Illinois has to be at the cellar right now. They've been absolutely horrible since Ron Zook um, was bounced from town. And I just, you know, Brett Bielema, it's a lot easier to do it, what he did at Wisconsin in Madison than it is to do in Champaign. So can he leverage those relationships he has in Wisconsin? 
to get some of those big linemen and um, some key players from that, you know, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan areas down to Illinois. Can he recruit Chicago really well over Notre Dame, over Ohio State, um, over Michigan, who, who traditionally do really well in that area? Um, I, I just I don't know. I do think it is a good fit. I think it was a good hire. He failed miserably at Arkansas, but, you know, everyone deserves a second chance, I guess. I don't think he should have ever made that move from Wisconsin to Arkansas. I thought he was made for life in Wisconsin. Um, so we'll see what he can do. I, I, I do think he potentially could get them to be like a 500 type team, maybe a seven win team, but I'm not sure he could really do much better than that. Yeah, no, that's definitely a fair point. Uh, when you talk about his success at Wisconsin, I think when you look at most of the coaches that they've had, uh, there post Barry Alvarez, very few were as successful before they got there. And, and none of them have, were more, you know, as successful after they left uh, Wisconsin, that program seems to be in such a great position. You can almost not to take anything away from Paul Chris or any of these guys, but it does feel like you can almost plug any coach and, and the system carries along no matter what. Um, but I, I think, you know, seven wins at Illinois, they might throw a parade for him if, if he does that. Yeah. I mean, agree, but you know, Ron Zook took him to the Rose bowl and then got fired. So everyone eventually like, your standards do change eventually for sure. Um, but maybe after the Ron Zook thing, maybe they kind of like look back on it and say, look, you know what? We're going to have to accept being the seven, eight win type team. And if we occasionally can make the big 10 champion, like, as I said, almost like an Iowa or what an Indiana is trying to become, like maybe, maybe they're like, okay, you know what? We're good with this. We, we remember going, you know, one and 11 or two and 10 or whatever it was under Lovey Smith, you know? So I, I, I think that, they're going to have to, if he could get them there, I think they're going to have to accept that. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe Brett can do it. I'm, I'm a little skeptical, but maybe he can. All right. Back to Rutgers. Uh, one more on them. That's a team you cover for the uh, rivals or Rutgers site. Um, I, I do love Greg Schiano. I think it was a phenomenal hire. I think he's at home there. I think he's going to set the program in the right direction. I'm just not as high in the team you know, this season as I end on them moving forward. Um, I believe their season win total in Vegas is four wins. Um, so do, do you, what, what's the goal there? What's success for Rutgers this season? Yeah, I think, you know, realistically, objectively, to me, you just want, want to see growth. And they're still working on the infusion of talent. They've recruited well. They've hit the portal well. They've developed guys well. So I think they'll get there. Uh, maybe, maybe not next year, maybe the year after, the, you know, two, three years down the road, Gavin Wims at, they got a really great quarterback coming in. I don't think his freshman year you can expect much, but a sophomore, junior year, senior year, I think that's what you could expect to see them really hit their stride. But I think if you look at their schedule, as I said, their first three games, very winnable temple, Syracuse, Delaware, um, they get Illinois, they get Michigan state at home. They get Maryland at home. To me, those are three very, very winnable games. And then there's a couple others, um, Michigan, Northwestern on the road. Not so easy, but potentially winnable this year. Um, I think that they can go. I think four to five wins should be the expectation, and you'd be happy with that. I think if they could get the six wins and go to a bowl, you're obviously ecstatic. So that's where my head is at. I'm actually projecting them to go six and six this year, but I said five and seven or six and six. 
um, on the site optimistically when, when six and six, but I think five and seven is very realistic, but that Rutgers might Rutgers and, and they could drop one of those first three games and, uh, and it kind of throws the whole plan out the window. So. Well, I, I have a brother who went to Syracuse who's in my ear, so I, I'm not, I, I'm not allowed to give Rutgers a W just yet on that one. Yeah. I mean, look, Syracuse is a program to me trending in the wrong direction. I, I really like Dino Babers. I thought he had that thing going in the right direction, but it's just, they have not been very good the last couple of years. And I think that one's trending downward. So with Rutgers trending up with Syracuse trending downwards, I think it's going to be a really good close game. And I could, I could see it going either way, but I, I do think Rutgers will be favored in that game. Okay, Alex, before I let you go, I got one more question for you. Can you, are you the one person on this planet that can explain to me what a conference alliance without contracts slash gentleman agreement exactly means? Um, if we're talking real, it really doesn't mean anything. It's an endeavor to um, basically, I don't want to say create a monopoly, but I mean, look, it's, it's, let's be real. It's the defense mechanism against the SEC expanding, adding Oklahoma and Texas, basically creating a super conference. They obviously have Florida, Georgia, Alabama, LSU, Auburn, um, probably missed a couple in there already that, um, are going to be college football playoff contenders, especially if the thing expands. And so I think right now it means nothing. It just means that they're going to create matchups that are going to generate and drive, you know, potentially large dollars when it comes to TV contracts and things along those lines. Um, and I think it's kind of almost an agreement like, Hey, we're going to play each other and not play the sec. And, um, just, just things like that, but you know, no contract signs, no nothing. Doesn't mean Ohio state can't go poach USC and UCLA. Doesn't mean they are no Ohio state, big, the big 10 doesn't mean, well, practically Ohio state doesn't mean that the big 10 can poach, can't poach North Carolina uh, from the ACC. Right. So I think it doesn't mean Clemson can't leave for the SEC. So I, I don't think it means much of anything. It, it kind of was a weird agreement that nothing is set in plan. It's kind of just an endeavor to, play each other, schedule each other um, and whatnot. But I think it is, you know, a defense mechanism basically against what the SEC is doing. Yeah, I forgot who tweeted it, but somebody basically called it the Seinfeld press conference, you know, a press conference (laughs) about nothing. That's kind of what it felt like yesterday. Yeah, a lot of a lot of words, not not much said. So I definitely agree with that. All right, Alex, thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the Big Ten football upcoming 2021 season. Uh, Hopefully we'll have you on again sometime during the year. and We'll check in to see how uh, all those four and five stars look at Ohio State and the and the progress that uh, Greg Schiano, Scarlett Knights are having. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, anytime you want me on, just shoot me a note. Let me know. Happy to come on and, and talk with you about Buckeyes, Scarlett Knights or. Big 10 college football in general. Okay, folks, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to the big Big 10 football show where we talk nothing but Big 10 football. I'm your host, Daniel Mogollon. You can find me on the Twitter. My handle is at Dan the Sportman. Unfortunately, the Sportsman was taken, but at Dan the Sportman. And I'd love to hear some comments from you there uh, about how you like the show. Anytime you want to talk Big Ten football or chat Big Ten football, 
hit me up there and we will be back with more shows next week.